This is Baja SAE Shop Talk, the official podcast of the Baja SAE series. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Baja SAE Shop Talk. I'm here with Matt Moody, the cost event captain for Baja SAE. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the cost report, how it's existed now, what it's going to look like in the future, kind of some of the gray areas or questions that continuously come up year after year. It's a unique event where students aren't all talking to Matt on site. If you're audited, you're going to talk to Matt. Otherwise, there's a chance you may never see him or know who he is. So I just wanted to have him on the podcast, talk a little bit about some of these questions that we get all the time. I asked for questions from you guys, and you gave me a few, so we'll be touching on those too. But first, we have a quick check-in from Joe, the Baja SAE California organizer, about the spark arresters and how they should be included on your cost report. Take it away, Joe. Hello, Baja teams. I'm Joe Batwinis. I'm the lead organizer for Baja SAE California. And I wanted to take a quick moment out of this podcast about cost reports to talk to you about spark arresters. So this year for Baja SAE California, as was the case last year, we will be requiring a spark arrester for all engines that are running at competition. This is actually a California State Parks requirement because we don't want to start any wildfires. Last year, we required that you used the Briggs & Stratton part number 790153 spark arrester. However, this year, the new Model 19 Briggs & Stratton engines that you are all running came with a spark arrester as part of the engine. So, that means that the rules this year are a little bit different. Since the engine that you have this year has a spark arrester included with it, you do not need to include the spark arrester in your cost report, even if you are using the spark arrester from last year. Additionally, while we're on the subject of spark arresters, just one clarification to any spark arresters, because apparently this has been coming into the rules questions inbox. Any spark arrester is considered part of the engine and therefore must be contained within the roll hoop. See rule number B12.1 in the rules. The entire fuel system, including the splash shield, drip pan, and engine, must be located in the envelope of the vehicle's roll cage. So, the spark arrestor is considered part of the engine and therefore must be with, located within the envelope of the vehicle's roll cage. So make sure your car complies with that rule. Okay, so that's all I have to say about spark arresters. They don't need to be in your cost report. You do need to run one, and they must be inside the roll cage. That's the short version. And see you in California. Now that all the California teams know what they're supposed to be doing with their cost report, let's move on. Hey, Matt, how's it going today? I'm doing good, Amanda. How about you? Uh, good. A little busy here, but moving along. So we are a few weeks out from the cost report deadline. Um, we have a little less than a month. So I wanted to get this out for teams to answer some of these questions. So I figured first place to start is the cost report. What's the theory behind the cost report? Why does it matter? The cost report is intended really to represent the cost of the prototype vehicle that your team brought to competition. In the past, over the many years, for those of you who've been involved with Baja for a long time, this event has evolved a bit from trying to evaluate the cost of your vehicle if it were mass-produced and say, a 1,000 units per year. Uh, That became really difficult in the past to judge accurately and and, uh, equally across the board. And so it evolved more into 
targeting the prototype vehicle using the manufacturing methods that you used on the car that you brought. Uh, it became something that we could actually judge a lot better. So that's the current direction, um, and it's intended to be using the actual manufacturing techniques on your car, as well as the retail price of the purchase of components that you're using. And this is an attempt to create a level playing field. The retail prices you know, should be the same for components that you're using. If everyone's using the same shocks, that should have the same cost associated with it. The reason for using manufacturing methods that you're using now is really to encourage the balance of kind of making your own components and the design decisions associated with that versus purchasing something off the shelf uh, and the costs that are associated there. So I, I will say in that note that right now, the way that things are cost out, the balance is tipped a little in the direction toward manufacturing your own parts rather than purchasing them. So right now, teams are going to be feverishly probably submitting or putting all their information into the cost report template. Once that gets uploaded on BajaSA.net and sent off to you, what's the process like on your end for processing a cost report, grading it, whatever you guys do? It uh, begins immediately uh, following the deadline. Uh, so after students are submitting reports, we're immediately gathering those reports, downloading them, uh, and starting a long process. Uh, the beginning of that process is largely automated. Um, and a lot of teams who've dealt with uh, some of the formatting challenges with the Excel template have learned that that, that format is, is very, very important to making sure that we can do a lot of the automation that's associated with grading. Um, 300 or so cost reports that are each, I think, somewhere in the ballpark of 60 pages long, uh, plus the documentation. So uh, we use a lot of, of uh, Excel macros and automation to, to try to file down and, and grab a lot of the easy uh, picking fruit to understand what's happening in your report. Then after that, we basically run reports out of your report, uh, and then we use that to do things. For instance, one of the largest tasks is identifying all the purchase components in your report and attaching a receipt to that. So you've kind of done this on the backside uh, to, to verify that you've got receipts for all of those purchased items that are over the $30 mark. Uh, we're having to verify that on the backside as well. And so we have some kind of workflow that, that's associated with doing that. And we also have a very, very small team of people who are trying to attack this over the course of the time frame between your submission deadline and the beginning of the first race. So um, that kind of gives you an idea of some of the things that we're doing to try to validate, you know, or confirm the things that you, you've been doing. Uh, and then also one of the big things we do is uh, review a lot of these things manually to uh, uh, to start to identify the things that are interesting about your car, some things that are different. Uh, maybe you've done something that is a little more unique than everyone else um, and uh, or something that is a you know, kind of a groundbreaking or what appears on paper to be a groundbreaking uh, manufacturing method that ends up saving yourself a lot of time or money or purchasing, you know, a certain combination of things that, uh, that kind of raise eyebrows for us either in a very good way or in a very bad way, but regardless, uh, allows us to start taking notes and understanding, okay, this is a car that I'm kind of interested in. That's kind of the idea behind what we're doing during that, per that period of time is 
uh, some portion of automated processing to try to gather out information out of your report so that we can review that in a uh, much easier to read format, uh, but as well doing a lot of things manual that we have to go through each individual report. So what might be a reason that a team might lose points? We had this question come up when I asked for questions, and I hear it a lot on site, and I even saw a few rules questions come in over the past few weeks about it as teams are starting to dive back into last year's report and see where they ended up um, score-wise. So again, this goes back to the fact that if a team's audited, they're definitely going to talk to you. Otherwise, they have to seek you out. And with all the things that are going on, they don't necessarily have that in their front of their mind. So what might a team lose points for? The easiest way to describe that is to start by breaking down the event points. So there are 100 points. There are 15 points associated with the report and 85 uh, points associated with the actual prototype cost. Uh, that prototype cost, the 85 points, is the large lion's share. And if you look in the rules, it, it describes the formula used, but it basically for all intents and purposes, takes the least expensive car, puts it at the top, and they get 85 points. We take, the, we take the highest cost car, we put them at the bottom, and that car receives zero points out of 85. And everyone in between is linearly uh, applied a score between those two, which is why uh, one of the common questions that I get is, why did I get one score at this event and another score at another event, even though I had the same cost associated with it. That means that you fell into a different portion of that linear scale at one competition because there might have been a higher cost car um, that sort of threw the scale off a bit or a very low cost car at that event that threw it off in the other direction. Uh, having said that, I will take extreme cases of uh, very high cost vehicles and we toss them out. Uh, you know, if we we have an average uh, cost of, say, $15,000, but we have a car that costs uh, you know, twenty-five to $30,000, uh, and he's, uh, that, that team is an is a outlier, uh, we'll, we'll usually exclude them from that linear scale to verify, to make sure that you know, we aren't swinging teams uh, wildly in one direction and bunching everybody on one side up or down on the scale. So that's, uh, that's been something we've run across in the past. That's where you're going to lose the most points in the event is where you fall. And I will say that that cost that, that you are assigned or that cost that's used for that scale is following all of the adjustments, whether by you, the team, or by us, the cost judge team, the event team who are judging. Uh, after all of those adjustments are applied, that's the number that is used to put you on that scale. So it's not just the number that you come in with on your report from the get-go. But the, the other part is the cost report. Uh, so there's 15 points there, but there's a lot going on in that 15 points. And you have to do a lot of work to get that 15 points, uh, making sure that your report is uh, filled out correctly uh, in the template, making sure you have all the receipts that are associated that I mentioned earlier for all of the purchases that you've made over the $30 limit, making sure that all of that stuff is in order, making sure that things are labeled uh, and easy to read. Uh, all of those are points that we're looking for um, that make up the 0 to 15 points for your report score. So it's kind of a paperwork number, um, but it really boils down to um, how readable, how organized is your report, especially the documentation itself, but, but also uh, a lot of the aspects inside of the cost template uh, 
the Excel template itself, making sure that you've crossed all your T's, dotted all your I's for your team name, your number, and making sure that you know, a lot of those formulas and things are not toyed with, uh, not modified. So that, that's what drives that 15-point score there, is making sure that you're doing everything that, that uh, makes your report easy to read, understandable, and uh, appropriate for representing your score. One of the questions that I had was how teams that are using more exotic materials or different manufacturing methods always end up near the top. Well, that would make sense that if they're a team that has their stuff together project management-wise, they would be more likely to get those 15 points than a team that was just flying by the seat of their pants at that point. It is a it is a challenge um, to make sure that you are representing everything correctly, and I understand that, having gone through this myself many times. The cheating aspect, uh, I'll address that. There are lots of methods that we use to detect cheating. I, I don't want to necessarily give away all of my tricks so that everyone knows how to skip them uh, necessarily, but a lot of it surrounds uh, formula checking throughout the template itself, and like I said before, confirming that your documentation associated with all of your purchases is up-to-date, it's correct, it's valid. It also has not been uh, adjusted. I'll give you an example. We find teams who, who try to fabricate uh, receipts or documentation for online purchases uh, or try to use things that are not retail prices. Maybe there's a discount or a sale price that they found. And so those kinds of things, they're fairly easy to follow up on in that time period that we have between the uh, the deadline time frame and the first event. And so we, we do take time to, to follow up on those things, verify you know, that that tire price is really the MSRP that we're looking for, and it's comparable to someone who's using that same tire throughout the rest of the competition, because again, we're trying to create that level playing field. So those are some of the methods that we're using to detect that. As far as the uh, manufacturing methods, I, I, don't, I can't speak a lot to exotic materials. I haven't figured a way without doing a, uh, de- uh, some sort of density check um, to, to determine the difference between, uh, say, a titanium upright and an aluminum upright. Uh, so uh, we have to rely upon a certain level of honesty out of teams when it comes to some of the materials they're using. However, the manufacturing methods, a lot of us who are involved go through these same manufacturing methods, and, and you'll especially ask some of the audit teams come through. We try to get in-depth in terms of, what your manufacturing processes really are, what makes sense for the amount of material that you're removing, uh, for the amount of time that you have involved in a welding of a frame or the, the weld material that you're using, et cetera, et cetera. So those are all uh, points that we're looking for on the manufacturing side. And we have certain guys on the, and girls on the team that are better suited to judging certain portions, and so they become the experts, and we're developing that now. But uh, those are... Those are some of the methods we're using to try to determine that. As far as uh, the question of, you know, I see teams with, you know, exotic manufacturing methods or crazy designs. Again, I mentioned before that right now, the way that the cost report is set up, it does lean biased towards someone who's manufacturing. And if you are, if you're smart about it, if you are following the rules, you can manufacture a lot of complex uh, designs that might exceed the performance level of some of the purchase components for costs that would be lower than purchasing those components. So that's that's a balance that everybody has to play with for their particular team. 
and drive help to drive those decisions of what effort they're putting in based on the manpower and the resources they have. And I understand that. That's a place where you know we're looking to change the outset or the the scope of what this is down the road. But for the moment, right now, it's it is sort of biased toward the manufacturing, and, and it's kind of rewarding the teams who are doing a lot more manufacturing on their car and spending the time to do that, doing their own designs, uh, rather than purchasing parts off the shelf to uh, assemble a car in that fashion. So so that's good information for teams that are not audited, but are still looking for feedback. When teams are on site and they haven't been chosen to be audited, how can they go about getting some feedback from you and your team? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question uh, because we don't have a lot of uh, time on site. Uh, for most events, and so it, it is a bit of a challenge. However, I'll give you a couple opportunities during the event. So during the actual cost event itself, there may be an opportunity to have that conversation, but it's it's uh, almost always at the end of that day. So during static day, it is it is probably the the best time would be at the end of that day. Come to the cost event area, maybe. If you come during the day, maybe reserve a time or, or say, hey, I'll come back over about this time and I'd like to get some feedback since I'm not being audited. And that's probably a good opportunity. Uh, sometimes that line gets long and that's okay. You might end up scheduling and you know some time to, to sit down with you as a team, maybe for the following day during dynamic day, if you have someone, the, the person responsible for cost or the team responsible for cost has the ability to come and do that. You can also target the award ceremony, immediately following the award ceremony. I won't promise that, that uh, our team members are always present after that, but it is another opportunity to try to get some feedback face-to-face to go over your report. And then the other opportunities are we're certainly willing to answer questions via RQA. That's not an on-site conversation face-to-face, but RQA could be a good opportunity to voice some of those concerns or ask some of those questions. And we have some contact information. I don't mind sharing an email address that teams can ask some specific questions to. I don't think I can provide 300 responses, but uh, so far there's been not that many teams who are willing to make the effort to try to learn more about it. So I'd say on average I get about 8 to 10 teams asking for feedback beyond the audit. So that means that only about 20% of the teams for any particular event are getting feedback. Unfortunately, right now, I don't have a better way of formalizing that. That may be something we're looking into implementing in the future. But uh, right now, those are the methods that I would suggest. It's important to recognize for teams who are coming to get feedback that because the cost report is a year-long document, there's not a lot that can be done once the events begin or really even once that deadline at the end of this month passes uh, for a report, the exception of that being the cost adjustments that we can talk about. Keep in mind that what you're asking for when you're coming to get feedback is really most likely to be feedback for for the following year. So you'll want to have team members who would be participating in that in the future to be part of that conversation. Yeah, that makes total sense. So you talked a little bit about how few teams follow up and try to get the feedback. And I think it's easy to get caught up in the four-hour endurance race, doing really well at the dynamic day. Certainly. But at the end of the day, this is an engineering design competition. And the static events are just as important to the integrity of the competition as the dynamic performances. Cost somehow gets 
put on the bottom of the list, I think, a lot of times. It's not something that every team has to justify at competition. It's kind of like a once it's submitted out of sight, out of mind until that score comes out and you look at it and like you said it can't change it at that point you just move forward with dynamic day so it's a little bit in no man's land for a little bit of the competition why does cost even matter in the real world i think everyone knows the answer to this but doesn't like to to hear it i work in a field an engineering firm a small engineering firm where cost is a large part when you start a project you set a budget out in our world you don't get additional money unless you have you know, some really good reason that someone's going to give you extra money. And so you really have a budget that you need to be sticking to. And if you go over that budget, nine times out of ten, that's actually money out of your pocket if you kind of look at it that way. You have some budget. You have some reason to try to stick to that. Um, as well as you know, even outside of, of that aspect, there's, a, there's competition. You know, similar to Baja. There is competition in the real world. And so even though you might be able to build, you know, the, the biggest and baddest version of your project with unlimited funding, uh, you've got to convince someone to purchase it or to fund it. Or you've got to convince someone to make 240,000 of these inside of a year. Those are all the commercial aspect to engineering is very real. And it's not one that any of us, myself included, like to admit uh, that we have to follow those constraints. But it is a constraint that's part of what we have to design around. So it's something that, that that's very important, uh, really in any, in any industry that you get into, whether it's a small company like mine or whether it's a large company uh, like an automotive supplier or, or uh, OEM. What is the adjustment process? How is it supposed to work? It's something that we continuously get questions at the registration desk about. So I just wanted to give you a chance to explain how it should be done and any tips that you might have for teams. There are two methods for adjustment. One is a good adjustment. One is a bad. I'll call it a bad adjustment. The good adjustment is the adjustment that you as a team are providing. Following your report, which we know for most teams, the, the submission time for a report like the cost report or even the design report might be really early on in your, in your build process. And so we understand that you may uh, have aspects of the vehicle that were not included in the cost report. Uh, and we don't want to penalize you for that. We do want to penalize you for not having big chunks of the car missing of the cost report because you submitted a placeholder and you just want to fill that out later. So we do have a limit to what that what that adjustment can be. However, there is a level of adjustment that you can make that will allow you to make sure that the cost report that you're submitting is accurate to the vehicle that you're bringing to competition. That's done on, a, on an adjustment form that is included in the template. There's nothing inside the template that is formula-driven to this form. Uh, it's a standalone form that you can fill out either by hand uh, or electronically, and you can bring to competition. The intent of that form is for you to submit it at registration time. Technically speaking, we can not accept anything that was submitted after registration because you found out that you got audited. And, oh, no, we've got to add a bunch of things in to make sure that we stay current or we stay accurate to what is actually in the car because we're going to be audited. So that's the idea there. So submit those forms at registration time to SAE members who are there at, reg at the registration table. Usually, Amanda, you're there for that, so you've received a lot of these. And of course, there's a lot of questions associated with who does this go to? Where do I go to? Do I bring it to the cost table? The idea is bring it to registration. Registration 
is a nice clean cut for everyone to submit. And then Amanda usually brings me a nice big stack of these for us to enter in manually uh, during the event. So uh, that's the time for you to apply your adjustments. And then, of course, there's the bad kind of adjustment where we find things that are inaccurate inside your report. Sometimes we can find those things just sort of sight unseen. For instance, uh, if you put in a, a, a ITP tire and you put in a discount price uh, and you give me a receipt that shows the discount price, but I know what the MSRP is for that tire because you are one of uh, 65 teams that are using that tire. So we have a, a retail price that's associated with that tire and you didn't provide that, you put in a lower cost. We'll actually adjust your report up to match that retail price for that tire. If you're using that tire on all four corners, then that adjustment applies four times because you have four tires. And then in the end, the reason this is a bad adjustment is because we found it and that means that it gets multiplied by three. So anything that you miss in your report, whether it be something like a, a discount price versus a retail price, or it's something that we find during the audit process um, that we adjust for, all of those adjustments get multiplied by three. So those are usually pretty big hits depending on the adjustment. Sometimes it's a pretty small. We found you were you know, five inches shy on some weld material. Okay, so you got 35 cents times five. That gets multiplied by three. Not a big deal. But if it's something like a tire that is a, a discount, it can be pretty substantial and can bring you a couple notches down in that 85-point linear spread that we talked about earlier. So it's really important for you to try to be as accurate as possible so that we don't have to go find those things. We don't, we don't find anything in your report that, that isn't an accuracy, that doesn't follow those rules to keep a level playing field. When Matt mentioned the adjustments are due at the time of registration, that means when you are speaking to me at the registration desk signing off. That does not mean three hours later or eight hours later after you realize you're going to be audited. So I just wanted to quickly touch base about that. We've not been communicating to teams about being audited until they got on site. So that's a little bit of the explanation why some of the teams that have been consistently audited were confused by that change a few years ago. So another heads up on that, that we'll probably be continuing that, I assume, Matt. That's right. Um, We want to try to create that level playing field and that opportunity for everyone to be sending in an adjustment and everyone has, you know, is making the effort to be as accurate as possible, whether you're being audited or not. And then the decision for you to be audited, well, not the decision, but, but you actually understanding and realizing that you're being audited is, is something that you find out there at the registration table because you came prepared. You had your, your report printed, which is another key point. Everyone is intended to bring your report printed and prepared to be audited, whether you're going to be audited or not, because ultimately uh, you can be audited at any point during the event, not just the cost static day, because we have lots of different reasons that, that just like in the same same way that tech inspection can, can see something funny or see that you may have changed something on the vehicle. Um, for instance, like the, the impound at the end of endurance, we have a couple key points that we're looking for throughout the competition that may key us in that you have done something that wasn't uh, necessarily included in your cost report. We do a little bit of research and maybe have a a reason to kind of pull you aside, maybe schedule something to say, hey guys, we need to 
sit down and go over things and make sure that everything in your vehicle is represented in your cost report. So everyone should come prepared for that, uh, whether you're being audited or not. And then when you get to the registration table, you find out whether that's something you need to be scheduling for the day or if it's something that uh, you can skip and not have to worry about for this particular event. So. So that brings me to the auditing question. So how are teams selected for audit, being audited? I know this is a little bit of a gray area. There isn't an exact science to it, although some teams are convinced there is um, <laughs> and that they're part of the formula. I will be as transparent as possible here. The top teams, I do want to cover some, a certain portion of the top teams. However, there's a lot of teams that have translated that into the audit list is a an announcement of the top 10 teams or so. That's not necessarily true because we also, as I mentioned before, we're kind of looking through reports over that period of time and, and identifying vehicles that may be interesting, uh, maybe incomplete um, based on what we're seeing, but they have a very low score or maybe teams that, that have something interesting that, you know, they have a low score. They don't seem incomplete, but they seem like they've done something interesting that has gotten them uh, maybe not into the top 10 or so, but maybe they're in the top 20 and, and you know, it's something we want to take a peek at. So ultimately, I want to keep everyone on their toes. I don't want you to think that if you're outside the top 10, you are uh, immune from the audit process. So uh, ultimately, the audit list that you see is not an announcement of the top 10 teams. It is an announcement of the teams that we have an interest in seeing. A subset of that is the top portion of the list. Uh, but it is not exclusively uh, restricted to that. We we do pick out a few teams um, that may be outside of that range that are still worth looking into for one reason or another and making sure. I mean, ultimately, the audit process is for everyone's benefit to make sure that we have as fair a process. Uh, and so ultimately, the reason for the top teams is because if you're in, if you are placing number one in, in the cost event, I want to make sure that you are as accurate as you could have been. Uh, and so we're going to put eyes on your vehicle. The same kind of theory applies for some of the other portions of the, of the field. We want to make sure that if you have a cost and you're representing it in this way, that it is accurate. So that's, that's sort of the thought process behind the audit list and really how many people we audit depends on sometimes really, honestly, the manpower that we have available at that event and what we think we can get through. Um, what the, the challenges are for that particular event, uh, things like that. So, Is there ever an instance where the team that is going to end up winning costs doesn't get audited? During my um, time, that has not occurred. We do not allow that. I've actually pulled a team off to the side and added audits um, in during static day once we realized that uh, maybe we started to drop team through the audit process, found that teams were not accurate and they started falling down on the list. And so other teams sort of creeps their way up that weren't being audited. So we will, if you get, uh, if you do get pulled in after the fact, at some point uh, that might actually be an indication that you're getting higher than we thought you were going to be um, because your colleagues who were above you originally are, are starting to drop. So um, I will I will admit that, but uh, certainly we, we don't want, again, we don't want the teams that are in that top echelon to go unchecked. We will be certain of that, even if it means that during Dynamic Day we have to start pulling people, and it's not something we want to do because obviously Dynamic Day is a day for dynamics and not static activity, but um, we will do everything we, uh, we need to do to make sure, kind of try to do our best to 
to maintain the sanctity of, of what's happening with the cost event as it is currently written. For teams that are new to Baja or have never gone through an audit, can you give a quick recap of what actually happens during a cost audit? It's fairly simple. Uh, it, it can be lengthy because we want to go through the whole vehicle. We set aside a 60-minute period of time where we will do two things. We'll do one, we're verifying that what you have on the car is associated with something, is represented in some way on the report. So that's that's kind of step one. Those are things that we might create some asterisks, make some notes about what we see in your report ahead of time to make sure that we uh, catch that. For instance, if you have very low cost shocks uh, listed on your vehicle. We want to make sure that that the, the shocks that you have actually are represented by this low cost that you have. If I if we have a three hundred dollar per pair set of shocks, and we show up and you've got some float three from Fox on all four corners, then then you're probably you're not being as accurate as you could be, and we will have to go through and uh, and make some adjustments for that. So the other uh, target is the manufacturing process. We want to make sure that all of the manufactured components on your vehicle are represented accurately to the best of, of our ability to, to confirm that on your report. So if you've got, you know, you've, you've shown a, a frame that has X number of tubes with this length and this much material and this much weld length, we want to make sure that that is representative of the frame that you have actually built and that you bring to us. So this is part of the reason that the car has to come to the actual audit process and it has to be in a completed fashion. So if you bring a car to us that's not complete, we cannot verify that your completed car is represented in your cost report. So that's uh, that's kind of some of the steps there. And then, you know, it's, a, it's very conversational, very informal. A lot of people get stressed out about it, uh, but a lot of the teams that have gone through it, especially more than once, can surely attest that it's a very conversational, very casual conversation that we have between the auditors and the team. And we really just want to talk about how you did what you did. It's uh, it's not necessarily a test. There are no right or wrong answers, but there are answers that match your report and answers that do not. So we're also not trying to trick you. Much like tech inspectors, we're not out to get you. Uh, the best audit that I have has no adjustments, has a team that can speak knowledgeably about their vehicle, and what they've done to manufacture it, both from a manufactured components as well as assembly of purchase, purchase components. So that's that's really the best audits, and, and honestly, those go pretty quickly. Uh, so if you want to minimize your 60-minute period with us, come in prepared. And uh, I'm not promising you get out sooner, but you have, you have a decent chance of being done if sooner if we get through the vehicle, through the whole report, and can't find anything. I also want to mention that when we do schedule the audits, uh, I do understand it is an additional task that you have on static day. I've been there as a team captain before. Uh, I know that it's a difficult thing to balance with everything that's going on. Actually, as, as we're choosing audits or as we make that selection, uh, go through the design order. And so design schedule comes out first, and then we schedule around that design schedule to make sure that you have not only that we're not on top of your design, because that's not hard to do, um, what's difficult is trying to schedule it so that I give you as big a block of time as possible to get through tech. I don't want to, if you have a design time frame that's at say 945, I don't want to, I don't want to put your cost audit 
right dead set in the middle of the afternoon because now you've got the morning broken up by design and the afternoon broken up by cost and now you don't have any chunk of time to get through your tech inspection. So in that situation, what I tend to do is I'll either try to butt you up right beside your design, which a lot of teams sometimes complain because they're like, oh, we got to go straight from design to cost. Well, I'm trying to put these things together so that you have a much bigger chunk of time to go through tech. Uh, or I might even put your cost audit at the very end of the day so that you've got a big block of time between your design time frame and your cost audit. So I'm trying to keep in, keep in mind students and you're you know, balancing everything on static day. You know, that sometimes comes off irksome when your design time and your cost time are very close together, but uh, it's usually, usually because I'm trying to help you out. There you have it. The cost auditors are trying to help you out. <laughs> Believe it or not. We've talked a lot about a lot of things, a lot of aspects about the cost report. Moving forward, what does the future of cost look like in Baja? That's an excellent question. There's been a lot of students that have heard me say uh, that we want to overhaul this system. The The current cost system was was put into place over a decade ago, and I think everyone can agree that it's, it's long overdue for a, for a rethink. So we've been in, in works for that. There's a, a conglomerate of of uh, old graybeards, as I'll call us, between the cost side, the tech side, and um, but primarily cost and, and scoring. We've been trying to overhaul the cost documents, the cost methods that are used to try to make it something that is more applicable to the event, more appropriate for what's happening, and something that, that is a little more a little more appropriate for uh, real world applications as well. So uh, there are some changes at hand. Fortunately, we've not been able to get those in place yet. There's been some. There have been a lot of resource challenges to that. We have a light at the end of the tunnel where we may be able to get those in place for the following year. And and what that's going to look like is, at least from a technology standpoint, we're going to get away from this Excel file. I know that would make a lot of people happy because there's been a lot of formatting issues and, and corrupt files and people converting the, the template from one type to another or sharing it. And then it ends up not going through our automated process, which is probably the worst part of the cost event to me. Actually, that's no, not probably. It is the worst part of the cost event to me. And so we're, we're wanting to just eliminate that Excel file altogether. Then, uh, so get this into a system that we can do on the web. And it, and it you know, is an is a error-handling genius uh, so that the errors can be handled immediately rather than waiting till after the deadline period. The other aspect is trying to overhaul the thought process behind it and create a more equal and level playing field. Uh, so, for instance, uh, not you know, some of you might be some of the teams may be familiar with this if you're crossover between uh, Baja and Formula, but being able to choose those items that you're using on the vehicle rather than from a list because there there is a somewhat finite list of options for things like brake calipers. So you're either buying one of say a dozen options for brake calipers, or you're making one yourself. Uh, and, and it turns out that there's ways, if, it, if your option that you're trying to choose is not on the list, then we can add those things in. So that's a big, big direction that we're trying to take a step in. We're not quite there yet, and weren't able to, to roll it out for this year, unfortunately, but uh, working pretty hard during this season, as well as the off season, to, to try to get that uh, put together and in place for future uh, seasons. Speaking of formula, um, Matt alluded to, you know, the drop 
drop-down boxes. Essentially, it's like going to an Amazon marketplace or something for formula. This year, formula is rolling out a new cost module that is taking place on their version of BajaSAE.net. So instead of submitting an Excel spreadsheet like they have in the past, they will be going in, essentially shopping for all the components on their vehicle. And then after they're all done, multiple people can work on it at once. It is much more streamlined. They can, it auto generates a printout and um, in formula, similar to Baja, they all print it out and it gets mailed off. So, which is not the way it is in Baja. Don't mail us cost reports, please. Um, But it's something that is really going to be game changing for students and the lead score, uh, lead of the scoring team for Baja is our developer for that project over at Formula. So essentially, you guys can see some of that technology coming down the road, I would imagine. If you're really interested and you really love costs, head over to the Formula SAE Fastcast. We just released a new podcast this year for them, and that's going to be the second episode is talking about the new cost module. And if you're really into it, you can uh, follow us on Facebook over at Formula SAE. And when there's a video that comes out that's showing the Formula students how to use the cost module, you can get a sneak peek and see what that looks like. Once the technology is built on that side, it sure will make it easy to transition over to Baja. And that's our hope is to to try to ride on some of those coattails. Again, not to copy that over entirely because there's there's portions of the formula aspect that uh, of the cost that that don't apply for Baja necessarily. However, um, there's a there's a good starting point there that uh, we we hope to to try to make use of and improve the cost event for both the students, most importantly, but as well as some side of benefit for us as the judges. Yeah, one of the interesting points that they made over on that podcast was that once all this information is in the same place, it sure makes it a lot easier to integrate the design report, the cost report. All of a sudden, these this information that people are putting in multiple places, all of a sudden needs to be entered once. So um, that is far down the road. <laughs> I would not say that's a 2018 option, but it's something that certainly happening behind the scenes that students may not always be aware of. So I just wanted to throw that out there as another option if you guys were interested. And speaking of formula, Matt, you listened to the Frame podcast, so you're aware of this. Um, This year, we're going to be asking each one of our guests a quick off-topic question. And Matt actually came to the CDS world via formula. So you're telling some some secrets now. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that was a secret surprise. <laughs> In your eyes, what is the difference, the key difference between Baja and Formula? So I'm not asking you to choose which one you like better. Oh, boy. I know this is a big one. Key aspect between Baja and Formula. Uh, as a student or for the competition in general? As a student. Full disclosure, I competed in, in uh, both, both events, uh, two years in Baja, two years in Formula. Ah, um, oh, I didn't know that. So, so. Uh, and <laughs> so as a as a competitor, uh, I would say that the pace of things uh, in formula is certainly um, much higher at competition. The build season, the design season, all of that is is 
apples to apples and, and all of you, the formula guys will, will point back at Baja guys and say, you've got, you know, so many fewer variables uh, and the Baja guys will point back at formula and say, you've got all kinds of options that, you know, that you have fewer constraints. But um, so that, that all is, I consider a level playing field for all intents and purposes. So long as you have the people uh, associated to drive a formula team versus what it takes to do a Baja team. Uh, at least on a minimal level, the real difference comes in at competition. I think the I think the pace of competition, the the attitude at competition, uh, for better or for worse, is a bit higher paced at Formula. Um, is you know it's a little more cutthroat, a little uh, more dog eat dog, if you will. And uh, Baja is certainly a, a competitive spirit, uh, no, no lacking in competitive spirit there uh, between teams between. Uh, uh, everyone, but I really feel like it's a little more at home at Baja, and I'm not just playing to the crowd here, but uh, I really, having competed in both, having been a, an event captain or, or an organizer in both events or both series, I think that as both a competitor and as an organizer uh, slash judge, I enjoy Baja events more, so I'll, I will actually go out on a limb and choose a side on this and say that you heard it here that's right i'll say that i enjoy the baja events proper at at the competition a great deal more than i do formula yeah i will say that even from our perspective baja is definitely a more casual competition than formula is and you know i will also say in formula's defense that over the past few years i think some of that baja spirit has started to spread over at the formula um on that side of the shop within universities that have both teams um i'm hearing a lot more stories of camaraderie teams yeah and i actually made a joke to a team last year about that kind of rivalry and they were a little bit offended and they told me how well they work with their formula team and how much they love them and i think that's cool so i think baja spirit is spreading which i think that's a good thing. Just in closing, couple recaps. Print out your cost report. Don't assume you're not being audited if you don't hear ahead of time. And Matt likes Baja better. So. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Matt. Do you have anything else that you want to put a final thought in, add to that list? Get all of your reports in by the deadlines, and best of luck to everyone. Good call. Deadline is March 2nd. And reminder, like we did on last episode, you only have five days to be late this year. If you do not submit by March 7th, you will be removed from competition. So pay attention to that. Download your report once you submit it. Yes. Just to verify that it works. <laughs> verify that it, that it uploaded so, and looks the way that it did before you uploaded it. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. Next episode, we're going to be talking to the Polaris team about the design report so we can get some helpful hints there. As always, subscribe to us, follow us on Facebook, and we'll see you at competition, Matt. Thanks for listening to Baja SAE Shop Talk. As always, we want to hear from you, so email BajaSAE at SAE.org. The show notes for this episode, as well as all others, can be found at www.BajaSAE.net slash podcast. Stay safe and we'll catch you next episode.